those people have been put around you and put in that place to help you for a reason. So like, let them help you and know that you would give it back to them in a heartbeat when their time of need comes, but accept the help, reach out and take it and accept it if it's offered. And don't be afraid to literally ask for it. That's really hard for us, right? We really have a hard time in our society. So reach out and say, be very specific. People don't know what to do. That's why they say, tell me what you need. And you're like, I don't know. But if it comes up, and even if you're like, you know what I need today? I need a, I need a Starbucks. Message someone. Can anyone bring me a Starbucks? They will do this. People will do this. People are jumping at the chance to be humans, good humans, and to do good things for people. Welcome to Glioblastoma, a.k.a. GBM, a podcast brought to you by the Glioblastoma Research Organization, highlighting stories of GBM warriors, caregivers, medical advisors, and more. Join us this season as we connect with members of our incredible community and have meaningful and insightful chats regarding all things glioblastoma. Please note that any information provided on this show is not meant to treat, diagnose, or prevent any disease And all information that is discussed in our conversation is what worked for the individual themselves and should not be taken as advice. The information provided in the show is not a substitute for professional medical advice, and you should contact your medical provider and healthcare team with any questions. Welcome back to another episode of Glioblastoma, aka GBM. Today, we are being joined by the fantastic Laura Dill, who is the founder and CEO of Slay Society and author of the book, Daughter. So hi, Laura. Thank you for joining us. Hi. Thank you for having me. So excited to have you. I know we've had many conversations in the past, and I'm so excited for our listeners to be able to hear your story and connect with you further. Thank you. I'm so excited to be part of this. And that you guys are getting to do this is such a great opportunity and it's going to bring so much awareness to so many people. Thank you. We're so excited. We can just kick things off. Tell us a little bit about your book, Daughter, and what, you know, obviously your parents' story inspired it. But like, if you want to just walk us through your parents' diagnosis, who was first, how did you cope? Just give us a little breakdown for all those who haven't read your book. Yeah, it's so loaded as any like, GBM story is, but probably if you're listening, you've caught that Amber said parents, plural. So both my parents were diagnosed with glioblastoma. My dad was diagnosed first at the end of 2019. And his diagnosis came as a complete shock. And I'm sure for many people, this is the case, but we thought he might've had Alzheimer's. He was showing a lot of cognitive impairments that just kept declining. They kept getting worse and worse throughout the summer of 2019. And by the end of that summer, he was diagnosed with a mass in his brain, a large mass, which obviously, this is why I'm here, turned out to be glioblastoma. So to go from thinking, you know, something's wrong, but you don't know what, to something as to the magnitude of a brain tumor is so terrifying and so surreal. And anyone I'm sure listening to this has experienced that. There aren't a lot of words. I managed to find enough to put into a book, but there aren't a lot of words to describe that realization, like to get that news, right? That moment. And you've had it, Amber, with your dad. And it's just, it's terrifying. So that was the end of August of 2019. He went through his reception, you know, surgery went beautifully. I remember the doctor coming out and saying, 
everything looks really good. It was textbook surgery. We removed all of the tumor and a margin around it. And he went home, you know, several days later to recover. And three days after he'd been home, it was actually my birthday. And I was celebrating my birthday with my dad. We had now since learned what the prognosis is of this disease. And for anyone that doesn't know, and I'm sure you do know, but anyone that doesn't know, the prognosis is typically a 12 to 18 months. And that's not a promise. That's not something you can bank on, but that's just sort of an average. Of course, we hoped beyond hope that he'd be the far end of that average or past. While I celebrated with him thinking this could be my last birthday with my dad, my mom, my parents were divorced. My mom actually ended up dropping of a seizure in her kitchen at that very same time that we had birthday cake together, my dad and I, and she was diagnosed with exactly the same thing, only 14 days after his diagnosis. And so were they at the same hospital? Yes, they were. We live in Ottawa, Ontario, we're up in Canada, and it was a very surreal reality, nightmare situation where her seizure resulted in a you know quick call to 911. She was rushed to the same hospital that my dad had been in. She was put in the same emergency room. And then a day later, she was actually admitted up to the same neurosurgery floor of the same hospital in the, the very next room. They would have had neighboring rooms if my dad had still been there, if he hadn't left three days sooner. So she actually ended up with two glioblastomas. Now, the really rare this is already rare. I think it's one in 100,000 people are diagnosed with glioblastoma from what I have read. So if you consider that, and then you take both my parents who were you know, married for 20 years, divorced then for 20 years, and bring them back together in this way of they've both just received one of the rarest diagnoses within two weeks of each other, it is, it's a story that you can't, you truly can't make up. And to make it even more coincidental, their tumors were actually the exact same size. They measured the same measurements and they were located in the exact same spot in their brain. And my parents were the same age. They were both 63 when they were diagnosed. Yes. So I know a lot of people listening to this might be thinking, oh my gosh, this can't be a coincidence. There had to be a reason. And truly, I believe that that is true. I believe there was a reason, there was a cause. However, the answer right now is no, we have no idea what it was. There has been some research, although very little, and a lot of doctors I have found tend to really not want to put their foot into that pond. Like nobody wants to look into that. It's a very much an Aaron Brockovich situation, but I have been told by all medical professionals, you're never going to pin what caused this. So I don't know when you stop trying, but someday I think we will get to the bottom. Right. I'm sure that's extremely frustrating and, you know, it's hard as a child, you know, I understand from my, my father having GBIM, like, obviously, we want all those answers. And yes. I wish we could have them yesterday. But you know, that's, I guess what we're all doing in hopes to like continue raising awareness and hopes that we do get there and get these answers for all of us that have questions one day. Yeah, absolutely. And it's our human nature, right? Like as human beings, we want to blame something when something doesn't go well or go our way, we want to blame something. And so of course, we want to look to well, what could have caused this? And for people who have one loved one diagnosed with GBM, even your brain is going to go to, is it where we lived? Is it because we were near, you know, cell phone towers? Or is it the cell phone itself, which most research is proving to not be <laughs> blamed on cell phones? And even then to like, is it genetic? Right. And there's a million questions. I mean, I remember after my dad's diagnosis, like, 
being the hypochondriac that I am, I went and got an MRI. And the doctors yeah. are like, you're crazy. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We need to run a brain scan. And they're like, <laughs> but it's not genetic. And I'm like, but we need to double check. So yeah, 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 I get it. You know, it's funny. They say it's not genetic, but there are genetic components. And so obviously, considering both my mom and my dad had this, that was me and my brother. That was our first thought or fear was, well, should we be now getting tested? And to be totally honest, the doctors, the neurosurgeons had never seen anything like this. And so their first answer was, yes, you should, because this is new for us. We've never seen, you know, two people not related. Now, it wasn't so much, is this a genetic thing? My parents aren't related that I know of. So that wasn't (laughs) the problem. It was the, what caused that? Because if somewhere we lived or cause that, then were we also exposed and would we be susceptible to the same thing? I assume your MRI was clear. Yes, my MRI was clear, thankfully. Yes. I guess I'm sort of figuring out, you know, obviously more research needs to be done for relatives of those that have GBM. But like my question is, do I get an MRI every couple of years? Is it bad to do an MRI every couple of years? Like insurance is obviously not covering a hypochondriac's desire to get tested because <laughs> their parent had brain cancer. I mean, I think there's so yeah. many questions. I hope as we continue to like raise awareness that it becomes a more prominent thing that like getting tested is normal. And maybe hopefully there's like, you know, a blood test to diagnose a potential Absolutely. gene. I mean, I think there's just so much opportunity for it. And I hope that we get there sooner rather than later for everyone involved. Well, and the only way we'll get there is truly like you doing stuff like this and us talking about it and using our voices and being really real and vulnerable. And I mean, to kind of bring this back to your original question, that's why I wrote my book because I felt, you know, when my parents got diagnosed, I was pretty open about this on social media. That's actually how you and I found each other. Right. And I was very surprised at how many people reached out to me privately and thanked me for talking about it so openly. And so candidly, and saying that their mom, their husband, their brother, their own loved ones had had GBM and nobody was talking about it. And I thought, well, where have you all been? Like, why is this right? Not, yeah, it's not as rare as we think it is. Exactly. Right. Yeah. When I even started like on my personal Instagram, like, you know, I was posting that I was starting a nonprofit and I had at least three people message me. One guy was like, oh, wow, my mom passed away from this like 10 years ago. And like, Yeah. I think there's this weird stigma in society that unless something's so happy and bright, like it's kind of like frowned upon to talk about it. And I constantly get messages of like, you're so brave. It's like, no, I'm not brave. It's just like, this needs to be a conversation. Yes. You know, I'm not some anomaly or some not on some pedestal. It's like, this needs to be talked about. The only way to make change is by talking about it. And it's like, well, if not, not us, then who, right? Exactly. You just need to do it. And that's how things get done. And, you know, you've started your incredible foundation since then. Our organization has grown significantly. It's like, yeah. because of us deciding to start, change has happened already. Yeah, it's true. And that's right. It just takes one voice, which turns into two, it turns into 10. And the more voices, the louder we are and the more attention. I always look at other cancers and, and I'm not comparing cancers, but I look at other cancers and their progression of treatment. And breast cancer, lung cancer, leukemia, these used to be among some of the deadliest cancers out there. And with all of the awareness and the campaigns that have gone on and the amount of people that have stood up for those cancers in the last 10 and 20 years, 
those cancers have become now some of the most treatable and curable cancers out there. And so we do believe that this can happen. Glioblastoma is currently, I know you're going to have Dr. John Bookfar on the podcast. And to quote him, glioblastoma is the deadliest cancer in humans. And it seems to be the least educated and the least talked right. about, and least funded. I did an interview the other day and they were like, well, what is your hope for everything that you're doing? And I was like, my hope is that GBM becomes as commonly understood in society as like breast cancer is like everyone knows that it's the pink ribbon and it's well why not brain cancer so that's what you know we're here to do as well I think we will get there there's a lot of talk (laughs) a lot of talk from people like us we're on the way we're on the way going back to you being a caregiver for both parents I mean how was that for you you're going back and forth between hospital rooms and between both of your parents suffering from brain cancer I mean what was that like what was your day-to-day like? So I took care of my mom. My parents, like I mentioned, were divorced and they are remarried, but my mom's husband was not in a position to care for her. And as a glioblastoma patient, not all, but many are not supposed to be alone in those you know months following their diagnosis, usually because of risk of seizure. So I knew that he wasn't going to be able to care for her in the way that she needed. So I actually took her to live with me, whereas my dad, his wife had, you know, a medical and nursing background, and she was able to be very hands-on and take care of him, and and he got the care that he needed. However, I originally started out wanting to help when it was only my dad diagnosed. My thought was that I would quit my jobs. I had three jobs, and I have three kids, and I'm married, and so I'm a wife, I'm a mom, I was an entrepreneur, I had a podcast, which I was just telling you, I have, you know, a landscaping business. And my thought was, I'm going to put all these on hold and I'm going to help take care of my dad three days a week and I'll work two days a week. And then all of a sudden my mom got diagnosed and that had to become basically full time, put everything away. And even quite honestly, being a wife and a mother, there was days where I couldn't even be a wife and a mother. I just needed to go be a daughter. So I had my mom living with me. I was trying to help with my dad and we set up their radiation at the same hospital and with the same doctor and started them on the same day. And so we actually would meet every day at radiation. I would take my mom and my stepmother would take my dad and we'd all meet at radiation and we'd have like family radiation, one parent than the next. And then we'd all go for lunch. And it was like this very beautiful, but weird, messy, blended family situation coming back together because of matching brain tumors. Like it was just the weirdest reality. But going forward, after the radiation was finished, my mom landed back in the hospital rather quickly. Radiation was not kind to her. She just did not do very well through it. My dad did, but he ended up with several infections. And so there was many months where I had two parents in two different hospitals. And being a mom of three kids, my mornings, you know, my days would look like I would get up in the morning. My husband would go to work earlier. He still had to, especially really had to grind at work because I was now not working. So we were living on one very modest income with a, you know, a dog, a house, three kids, two cars, and all of our bills that we paid. So it, it was very tight for us. So he would head to work. I would get the kids up, get their lunches made. Then I'd get and their breakfast, then get my mom up. My children were under eight years old, all of them at the time. I'd get my mom up. I would help my mom in the shower. She'd become Actually, sorry, I'm I'm like backtracking. That was even in the beginning when I'd have to help my mom. This is now when my mom's in the hospital. I would get all the kids up. Kenny, my husband Kenny was at work. 
And then I would get them to school, drive to my mom's hospital, give her the rest of her breakfast if the nurses hadn't finished with that because they very rarely had time to really properly give her a full meal, right? It's just nursing shortages all over the world. It's just very tragic. I would take care of her and then I would get her her lunch. I'd get her to physio and then I'd drive across to the other side of the city to my dad's hospital and I'd spend the afternoon there so that his wife could go home, take a break. I would take care of him, take him for a walk, get him up and moving, get him lunch, whatever he needed. Then I would get back across the city to the end that I live in, pick my kids up from school and do the whole kind of nighttime thing with them. I say this a lot, but get through homework, lunches for the next day, get everything ready, have a glass of wine, cry myself to sleep, repeat. (laughs) So that was my life for many months was splitting my days between two hospitals, three kids, a husband. Everybody at the time would say, like, how are you doing this? I don't know how you're doing this. I mean, I'm sure we've all heard that many times, right? How are you doing this? And at the time you think like, yeah, I don't know. I'm just getting up and doing it. I don't have another option. What is my other choice? Not go. But I do now look back and I think, how the heck did I do that? How did I actually not break down? You kind of like run on adrenaline and you just like have things that need to get done and there's not even room for thinking. It's just like you have stuff to do. There's no option to not get it done. You just do, do, do. You just do. And you just said there's not room for thinking. You're so right. And when people are in that state of trauma, whether it's like right at the beginning, learning of a a diagnosis that's, you know, not favorable or going through on autopilot like that, get up, kids breakfast, kids lunch, here you go, drop them off, go to the next hospital. There was a day I walked into a Starbucks and I stood in the Starbucks line and I would usually drive through. But that day I thought, no, I'm feeling good. I need to get out of my car. I need to like see, you know, and be in a different environment. And so (laughs) at the time, a different environment was walking inside a Starbucks instead of driving through the Starbucks. Yeah, And I I stood in line and I looked at the menu and I could not decide what I wanted. And I always get the same thing. This is what's so ridiculous. I always get the same thing. I don't, I went there for one specific drink, but I felt so overwhelmed looking at the options and just my brain's inability to make a decision past the autopilot that I was living in. I broke down crying in the Starbucks. As soon as they said, what can we get for you? I just broke down crying because I thought I have no idea. I can't handle something of this magnitude, picking a latte or, or a cappuccino <laughs> when there's this many things going on in my life. Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely hard when you're in that situation. How do you feel you got through every day? Like, were there any rituals you followed or what do you feel kept you grounded during that time? Well, I write about this in my book and you mentioned my book in the beginning and I keep not even getting to the book part because the story is so crazy. But so when I wrote the book, The purpose of my book was actually to just write it as a memoir, capture my own experience with glioblastoma as a caregiver and share it in a way that wasn't just a blog on social media, like share it in a way that someone could like devour it in one weekend kind of idea. It morphed quickly into this process, this sort of eight step guide almost on how to survive, how to not fall apart in that caregiving journey how to not lose who you are. There was days in that journey where I really thought I'm not going to be okay. Like I'm mentally, I'm not going to be okay. I will not be able to survive this. Not like I'm going to drop dead, but I thought about suicide. I thought about when my parents die, maybe I just want to die with them. I mean, I, I even thought a very real fear that I was going to crack, like snap. Something in my brain would snap from all of this trauma, stress, and pressure. 
and the demands now of having essentially five dependents, right? Three kids, two parents, it, let alone everything else I already did in my life. And I'm very involved in community and sports and my kids are all involved in sports. My husband, I mean, we're not a little introverted family. And I thought something's going to happen and I am going to end up in a mental institution. Like for sure. I was guaranteed that that was going to happen to me. I don't know how it didn't. But when I went back and wrote the book, I had to kind of think about why and how that didn't happen and what did I do. And so I had to go back to the very, I could talk a lot about where I'm at now and why death is okay. And that's probably a hard thing for anyone listening to this to hear me say out loud. But a lot of those concepts of laws of attraction and using your grief as fuel and spirituality. and But nobody's in that place when they first get hit with a diagnosis. Nobody's thinking about spirituality. They're thinking, how do I not fall down right now in this spot I'm standing in? So I had to literally backstep all the way to that place of finding out my dad had a brain tumor, like from moment one and kind of meet whoever was going to read this book, like meet them where they were at and think, what is the very next thing I did? unconsciously at the time, but what is like the next thing I did? And one of the biggest things for me, which I I think you've read it, so you know this part, but was literally drinking water. And it was like so small, but I had a day where I went and made a, you know, made my coffee in the morning at home, filled my water cup, which I never fill water in the morning. I always just get up and have coffee. And I filled this glass of water and I chugged this huge glass of water without even really realizing I was doing it. And then I refilled it chugged the second glass of water. And it kind of hit me that I was very dehydrated and I'm a very fit, healthy, you know, athletic person. I always have been. So for me to have gotten that dehydrated was not, not normal for me. And I thought right in that moment, like there's one thing I have control over is the fact that I can get up every day and start my day with one big glass of water. And it sounds so trivial and silly, but that became something that I could grasp onto. And then fill a water bottle, right? Just one thing, one small thing I could be in charge of. And that was making sure. That's really great for listeners to hear that are currently caregivers. I wish I had your book when I was dealing with my dad's diagnosis. Like I didn't even look up like how to deal with it. I was just, what is GBM? You know, and you Google every possible worst case scenario, but I didn't even think of how do I take care of myself? Like, what do I do for myself? I mean, I was taking care of my dad every morning when my mom was out at work from like 8am to 3pm and like my life started at three. But again, I felt bad for being out and like, it's okay to like take time for yourself and to like do these things that kind of ground you in like, life and reality that you still have to take care of yourself, you are a functioning human being and that you can't forget to prioritize like your mental health, like your well being your self care. And that's something that I think from reading your book, definitely touched a lot on, which I think is really great for anyone, you know, who hasn't read it, definitely go pick it up. But it definitely gets just, just what you talk about is so important. And I think that's a lot, a big reminder that when you are caregiving for someone, you don't really put yourself first. And sometimes I think you feel bad for putting yourself first. But I also heard from a family member of mine, like you can't take care of someone unless you can take care of yourself. Oh, it's so true, right? It's so true. And there's like caregiver burnout and compassion burnout or compassion fatigue. And those are such real things. And it's so like, to me, it's almost, oh gosh, I can't think of the word ironic, I guess, that we're talking about self-care because part of my book is about how self-care is ridiculous. It's not ridiculous, but how it's a ridiculous concept when you're a caregiver. And 
you yourself, you've experienced this. How many people say to you when you're in that role, make sure you're taking time for yourself. And my first thought was, when in the hell am I supposed to take time for myself? I am taking care of three kids who like spit toothpaste on the wall still and pick their nose. Like they are not independent. I've got a parent in diapers. I've got another one who can't get up without a helmet on. Like where am I fitting in spa time? Like that's not realistic. So I think what I liked about being able to write this book is to give people things that are so tangible and so small, but that usually wouldn't be viewed as self-care. Me having a glass of water every morning, that was self-care, right? But when we hear it from somebody else, we often think, oh, I'm supposed to plan a girl's night. I'm supposed to go get a massage. I'm supposed to go, you know. Right. And we can't do that without a lot of guilt. So yeah. Thank you for saying that because I appreciate that you recognize that some of those self-care things were realistic things. Right. And I think it's also important to note as a caregiver, I mean, self-care can mean anything from like taking a bath to not even literally doing nothing, like watching Netflix. Me personally, whenever I think self-care, I think gym and like green juice. And like, sometimes I don't <laughs> want to do that. Even last night, for example, I ate burnt veggie chicken nuggets for dinner. Sometimes, <laughs> you know, like that's my self-care. You don't always do yeah. whatever feels good to you. And if that's yeah. doing nothing, like that's self-care. Yeah. That's really important that there's plan a spa day. Who told us that self-care is a spa day, right? Exactly. Or a trend. Exactly. Self-care can mean anything. Yeah. yeah. Digging deep. And I mean, I didn't realize it in the moment going through that process. I wish I'd had something similar to my book at the time too, to kind of help me. But luckily I did find ways, but digging deep to find things like drinking water or I remember a therapist, my therapist said to me one day, she said, what's your quietest or favorite time of the day? Or when in the day do you feel the calmest? And I said, well, this is when I had two parents in the hospital, different hospitals. And I said, it's after I drop off the kids, I go get a coffee. I had no business like buying a coffee every day. (laughs) It wasn't working, but it was, it was survival. And I said, it was, when I get my coffee and I drive to the hospital and I just listen to the radio and I can hear the morning show on the radio and it's just quiet for 20 minutes of my day. That's my quiet. And she said, then that's your self-care. And maybe in this season of your life, that's as good as it's going to get. And that has to be okay. And that was a bit of a permission slip from her to just be like, yeah, I'm going to let go of this notion that I'm supposed to go have a weekend get away with my girlfriends while really if I did that, I would have been miserable because while my body would have been there, my head and heart would have been in two hospital rooms. And I already was splitting my head and heart between two hospital rooms. So that type of self-care is not realistic when you are in a caregiving journey like that. And if it is, by all means, have that or go have a girls weekend or a guys, you know, a guys weekend. But if it's not, that's okay. And if it's drinking a glass of water and then sitting in your car and driving slowly, purposely in a slow lane, then take what you can get and know that it's just a season in your life. It will pass and things are not forever. It's funny you say that about the car. When my dad was sick, I would, you know, go out with friends to dinner. I would try to get out of the house and I would purposely subconsciously like not want to go home because I was, yeah, this is not an escape from reality, but I want to enjoy this peace for like, you know, as long as I can and not be faced with my parent that's dying at home. So I would just drive around the block and like repeat the same song. And I was like, okay, well, when this song ends, I'm going to go back. And I'm like, oh, wait, like one more time, like one more time. And then I would go into my building's garage and I would sit in the parking space. Anyone that knows me can attest, like I will sit 
in the car off with like the seat heater on for an hour when I get to my destination. And I was just like sitting cozy in my car. And then eventually I'd be like, whew, okay, it's time to go inside. And like, I would do that probably every single night. Honestly, I still do it. Not because of sadness or whatever, but I really just feel like my car is like my cozy spot. Everyone's got their thing. Well, I think a lot of people, it's their car. Like, first of all, it's the best place to cry. Second, (laughs) nobody interrupts you. I mean, I'm a hockey player and I, once a week, you know, I go out for hockey and I come home and I sit in my car after hockey and sometimes it's 11 PM. And I mean, I could come inside, everybody's sleeping, but I'm still sitting in my car because it's just, I'm just having like complete silence. I can listen to voice messages. I can, you know, and I know I'm not going to wake anybody up. And maybe like you with all the trauma of this GBM journey, maybe it's just become, you know, my safe place. Yeah. (laughs) A place to fall. But yeah still love time in my car. I'm with you on that for sure. (laughs) You can sip water while you're looking. So how are your kids and husband affected? Obviously, you were mom of three full-time and a wife full-time. How did they take the diagnosis? And were they also helping you on the caregiving journey? Like, How did they come into play with everything? It was really interesting. My husband's very, very introverted. He's very quiet, very introverted and stoic, right? Kind of that patriarchal upbringing of like, be that stoic pillar of strength for your family and doesn't show a ton of emotion. And we've been together 17 years. And this was like the most, there's so many words for this. I feel like there's so many different directions and it's going to sound conflicting, but it was the most shut down, but also the most vulnerable I'd ever seen him. It's like he was outwardly shut down, but emotionally more, more available than he'd ever been with me. And the reason was because I personally had not had an MRI yet. And so what he saw was my father-in-law was just diagnosed, that my mother-in-law was diagnosed. What are the chances my wife and my brother-in-law are now going to be diagnosed? And then with the stress of all of this trauma for myself, this really manifested for me in a lot of very intense piercing migraines in the exact same location of where my parents' tumors were. And he thought that this was it. I had glioblastoma. So what he could see, you know, in his kind of reeling out of control mentally, I was putting polysporin on 64 staples on her head every night before bed. And, you know, and that's what I think he saw. He saw like, this is what I'm going to have to do. So not only was he kind of like in his own imagination, picturing the worst, he was physically seeing it right in front of him and what it would have looked like, how it, I had to hold right. her hand to walk everywhere, how I had to tend to her, this, the scars and incisions. And, and so it really put him in a very bad place. And then on top of that, like I mentioned, I wasn't working. So he was having to work extra. Plus I stopped being a mom almost entirely. So in the physical sense of like picking my kids up from school, he very often would come home and get the kids and then come home and keep working. And And so I think it just ran him into the ground, not anything that he was, would have ever, could have ever been prepared for. And he ended up having his own mental breakdown during the beginning of these diagnoses. And that was really hard because all of a sudden dad had gone through surgery and home to recover. My mom's now diagnosed going through surgery and still in the hospital. And now my husband hasn't gotten out of bed in five days and he's not watching TV and he's not playing video games or doing the things you'd think he'd be doing if he were like, quote, sick and lying in bed. He's just strictly lying in bed in the dark all day long. And this is not like him at all. And so by the fifth day of that, I said to him, you're not sick. And he said, no, I don't think I am. 
and I had to call his work and we had to arrange for him to have appropriate time off and we had to get other people. So I've always, I very much maintain this belief that there's the patient, let's say at the nucleus of this mess, right? And then the caregiver outside of them, but then the caregiver needs a caregiver. And so my caregiver became my husband, but then my husband needed a caregiver and who was there for him. So it really has to be circles of support. There has to be like these concentric circles sort of stemming out from the patient. And he just didn't have it until we realized there was a problem and we put it in place. But once we did that and he'd had the time to process and I did get a a clear MRI back, he had a, a huge turnaround and he was doing much better. He was always very helpful not always very helpful with my parents, but very helpful with stepping up in the parenting role where I couldn't anymore, where I just didn't have the capacity. My children were really young. Like I mentioned, the the oldest was eight. They were four, seven, and eight when my parents were diagnosed. And they were old enough to understand. And we were always very honest right from the beginning of this is what's happening. And we're going to lose them sooner than we thought. And So let's, we wanted to teach them empathy and teach them just the importance of now and of time and not of trivial things and teach them how to just live in the moment and let's make the most of this time that we have with them while we have them. And and I think it really changed who they are. I think it really wrote on the slate of who they were as little people and taught them more compassion than I think most kids at that age have the opportunity to learn. I mean, they saw a lot of things that not many kids at age see experience loss that a lot of kids that age don't experience. But yeah, they were fascinating. They processed well and they could grieve throughout. And it's it's been a, a really very spiritual journey to watch these little kids process all that. And my daughter one day when she was eight was playing a game in her room, just like a, a you know imagination game. She had the door shut and then she came out, she said, Mommy, I made up this game where my son's name is Wesley. He was five. She said, I made up this game where Wesley has a brain tumor and is dying. So I made a zoo. So she had taken all of her stuffed animals and her beanie boos and she made a zoo in her room. She grouped like all the bears over there and all the turtles over there and all the, you know, all these different animal categories and monkeys. And so she made her room into a zoo and was charging admission as a fundraiser, <laughs> charging people admission in this make believe game as a fundraiser to save her brother's life. <laughs> and wow. I, yeah, and I went to a therapist and I said, holy hell, like, is, it, is this normal? And she said, yes, 100%. That's how she's processing through play, right? Through wow. imagination. She's processing all that she's learning and singing and understanding. And it's tragic that they don't have grandparents now on this side and they were so close with them, but it's just been a beautiful journey of growth to watch them develop that sense of empathy and compassion, you know, and nurturing at such a young age. Well, I think also on your social media, you posted a few days ago about like how you guys wrote letters by the river and watched them float yeah. down the river. So that's really nice. It's really beautiful to see that it's, it's cool that like, you know, they get involved and that they're handling it so well. So, I mean, that's, yeah, so happy for you guys that you're able to make positive memories through, of, of course, I mean, that was super unfortunate. Thank you for that. I. I mean, I'm still trying to be so like public about what we do with grief. And so for anyone that doesn't know, like I'll fast forward that story. My parents did pass away in 2020. One passed away seven months after diagnosis and one, my mom passed away 13 months after her diagnosis. 
you know, it's been just came up on the anniversary of, of it being two years since we lost my dad. My dad died first. And yes, we went down to the beach, to the river here where we live, where we grew up with a cottage on that beach. And we had written, I had the kids write letters to him. And I said, write a letter to your grandpa, what you would say to him if he were right here. And I thought now that they're nearly 11, nine and seven, I thought they'd be like, this is stupid. Like, I don't want to do this. I just want to make a sandcastle. Leave me alone. This is a dumb idea, mom. They call me cringy all the time. I don't know if you've heard that term. They're always (laughs) saying I'm really cringy. So I thought they would just do a whole like, you're so cringy. I hate this. But they were so into it. They each sat with their own clipboard. They took space from each other. They went, you know, one sat on a rock over there, one by the sand over there. And they all wrote these letters to my dad. And I said, do you guys want to share them with each other? Or do you want to keep them private? Some of them had drawn pictures too. And all of them chose to keep it private. My little guy, I convinced him to take a picture of his letter so that he wouldn't forget what he wrote. (laughs) That's what I had shown on social media. But they did it totally on their own. And then we folded these into little, like Amber was saying, into little paper boats. And we floated them down the river to grandpa. And I thought that was a nice release like a memorial you know release way right. to get those emotions out for them and keep his memory alive and that was on his what we call angel anniversary. we'll be right back in just a moment and now back to the conversation Looking back overall, what was the biggest lesson you learned from your entire GBM journey? If I know there's probably hundreds and thousands and I could go on <laughs> for days, but like if you had to pick one, what is the largest takeaway that you've had? I'm going to pick two and I'll try to make them short. So my sister-in-law one day when I was actually having my first daughter, my sister-in-law gave me a you know, baby shower card. I write about this actually in my book and it said, you know, as far as parenting goes, since this was my first baby, she said, do what comes naturally and ignore the rest. And that was always one of, I think, the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten in life in general, because we live by everybody else's rules. And whose freaking rules are these? Like, who's making up these rules? Who's creating these right. boxes that we need to live in, right? It's the same people that told us that, that spa days mean self-care. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's just what we should know and should do and should think, right? Like, that was big for me, even as a caregiver, because you get a lot, any caregiver will know of any disease ever, not just GBM. You get a lot of advice, a lot of unsolicited advice, and it's all well-intended. I don't think anybody would ever give hurtful opinions of what she thought I should be doing with my mom. But even with her, as an example, it just I kept that in mind. I kept what my sister-in-law had said in mind, and I thought, it doesn't matter what you say to me. This is what feels right to me. This is what I feel like my mom, my mom lost her ability to speak months into this journey. So for the last six, seven months, she didn't speak. So she couldn't speak for herself or advocate. And so I had to make a lot of those decisions just based on what I felt would be the right thing to do and what I felt she would want. And that was always an important thing to me. Do what comes naturally and ignore the rest. And I take that into parenting. I want to take my kids out of school for a day to take them to the beach and float paper boat letters down the river. I just do when I don't care that other people might think, man, she really takes her kids out of school a lot. Or, you know, and I'm trying to teach my kids that same lesson of, you know, live for yourself and don't live by other people's standards. That's one that helped me get through that journey. The the other thing I think I just really learned was what I value and what I don't value anymore. You know, and I used to value just 
I think it's just changed. Like what I used to value was much more material. It was just a, a version of myself that maybe I wasn't quite true to who I was and going through what I did and the, the trauma that I did, it taught me, it just taught me about people, about time, about what truly is important in life and what truly isn't. And that sounds so cliche, but you know, that lesson is cliche and common for a reason. And it's unfortunate we learn that because of big trauma like that and losses very often and that there isn't a way for us to learn that sooner. Right. And I think these are like things that are so frequently repeated, you know, and ingrained in us by society that these two examples that you just said, but it doesn't actually, at least for me personally, I feel like it doesn't actually hit home until I went through all of this with my dad. And it's like, okay, well, this actually makes sense. Like what is important in life? And not only, you know, a chronic illness, but like someone passing away, it really shows you what is important in life. Yeah. So I know you're interviewing me, but you tell us like, what was your <laughs> lesson? Because you went through this too. Yeah. Obviously, you know, I could name hundreds, but I think that the biggest one, at least it was the quickest one that I realized was don't wait till tomorrow. And that's why I do, I don't want to say very impulsive, but like when I want something, I'll do it. For example, we want to start a podcast. We're recording two weeks yeah. later, right? So <laughs> yeah. a lot of my dad, he traveled when he was younger, but not a lot. And he had huge places of lists he wanted to go and was always one day I'll go like one day I'll do this. I'm saving up for this. And he was taking care of his family. So I totally understand that. And, you know, he really put us first in every possible capacity, even when he was sick. I mean, there are just so many stories that we could get into, but it was always, he was always just waiting and waiting and waiting for like the day to come. And then unfortunately, like the day didn't come. And so, you know, I hope wherever he is now, he's getting to, you know, do all these things in as like a spirit or, you know, whatever. I haven't really figured that out yet, but yeah, I don't want to wait. And so right after he passed away, I ended up traveling Asia by myself for three months. I called it like a figure my life out trip. I didn't figure anything out. (laughs) I was just, you know, dealing with grief and I was, let me just distract myself and met some fantastic people. And it was just a really like calming experience for for the most part. Um, And so, yeah, I was always just, I've always been like, if you want something, make it happen. But even ingrained in more of something is going to happen. Like it needs to happen if I want it to. So yeah, that's my biggest advice. Yeah. And I find it so interesting that you just said, you know, you went on this trip and with this expectation that you were going to go figure your life out and you didn't. And I think that is so relatable because we very often, you go through something like this, some form of trauma, whatever it may be. And we think, well, there's a reason. And so now I'm going to take this time and go find out that reason. And then when it doesn't happen within that time, we're like upset about it. It took me a while. I came back and I was like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I don't have a job right now. I went to Asia for three months to do what? Like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And yeah, yeah. I still, I mean, I'm doing my best. (laughs) That's all we can do is do our best, right? We're (laughs) We're trying. trying. I took a year, you know, after my parents passed away, my idea was I would take, you know, I'd go back to some of my work, but I would essentially give myself the year without pressure to run back to like full-time work and to just, to write my book to start a course, to do, you know, work on my charity and to do all of these things that I felt like were bringing me purpose and that were going to give me the answers as to why, like, why did this happen to them? Why did this happen to us? And I have to honestly, like to be super, super transparent, this, and I've, I've only said this to select people, but this last year of my life, not even the year right after they passed away, 
that year I had a book to write. I had a course to design. You know, I had a charity to build. But the year after that, when those things were done and out in the world, this has been the hardest year of my life this past year. Yeah, harder than when they were sick and dying. You know, harder than after they died. And I had now will grieve for the rest of my life. We will all be grieving. There's no timeline on grieving, right? I don't think there's even an end at all. But just the like, where do you go from here? And the trying, I don't even know what the word, the pressure of feeling like I was supposed to have figured this out. I went through all that trauma and then I did all these things to heal from it. And I'm mad at myself because I feel inferior that I didn't figure it out yet. And then I'm still here now. I'm 39. I've got these three beautiful kids, this wonderful husband. And I still, why can't I seem to get my shit together kind of a feeling, you know? And then I can look at all my own credentials and say, oh my God, I wrote a book. Like I wrote an international best-selling book. I started a charity, a registered charity in Canada, which is not an easy feat, <laughs> which we talked about before the podcast. I've designed programs within hospitals up here to help caregivers become part of patients' care teams. I've, I've done a huge amount of things, but I still have this feeling of why haven't I figured out what I'm, what I'm doing or what I'm supposed to be doing? And it's been very dark at times and very, very difficult. And I think that's something that people don't really talk about. So I hope our listeners will be able to listen to what you're saying and understand like, that no one's alone in this. We all get it. We've all been there. And unfortunately, we're all in the same place. But I think, you know, it's extremely important that we are all in the same place. And like, you're not by yourself and how you're feeling. And there's guaranteed hundreds of thousands of other people who feel and are thinking the exact same way that you are while you're dealing with this. So that's what we're here for. We built an amazing community. And that's what we're aiming to do. Definitely makes the whole thing much, much less lonely when you realize that you're not alone. And that, that alone, I think is half the battle. And it's funny to think when my dad was sick, I mean, I didn't have this. Our organization wasn't existent. And so I had no one to talk to. I think I had reached out to a couple of friends who we ended up stopped being friends because they just didn't know how to deal with someone who was crying all the time or who was depressed. And it's like, my dad has cancer. They're like, oh, what do you say to that? You know, and it's hard. So I think it's really nice. Yeah. What we've created. It's like people get it. Everyone here gets it, which I think is so important. I think so. And that, that is actually why as well, through my charity, I started a, like a virtual face-to-face live support group because I, for caregivers only, because I felt like there needed to be a place. There was times when I would go to support group and these support groups were fantastic. The ones I went to, they were truly fantastic, but they were patient and caregiver. And they were just, there was things I needed to be able to say without my mom hearing me or without my dad feeling like he was a burden because he wasn't. But the, the, demands of caregiving are just really hard. And you have to have a place where you can say, this is really hard without that person feeling like it's their fault or like they've done something wrong. And so I've been really fortunate to create that support group through the Slay Society. And it's growing and growing. And just to be able to see these people come in and say, thank gosh, I have this because I don't know what I would do without it. And I think, well, it's true. So many of us did. You and I did. We didn't have a place like that. And we are changing the fates of the glioblastoma journey. I think we are, and I hope we continue to do so for a very long time. Yes. I actually have uh, two follow-up questions, which I just thought of while you're speaking, and they're unrelated, but I'm going to throw them out there so I don't forget. Right. The first one is, what do you feel as a caregiver, or what was not the hardest moment for you, but was there one particular moment 
with one of your parents where you felt not like this is it, but where it was just extremely challenging for you? And the second question. Okay, so there is a a couple like moments, like really standout moments that were just the most excruciating moments. But one, and I wrote about this one in my book, and you know this one, and it's when my dad was in the hospital. We couldn't visit at this time. This was March of 2020. We couldn't visit because of COVID. And he had, he'd gone in with an infection, but he'd had a CT scan of his chest that day that had revealed blood clots that we didn't know were there in his lungs. And so not knowing this, I was watching a movie with my husband that night. My dad called me at 930 at night, which was late for him to call, especially being in the hospital. And he basically said, Laura, I'm calling to say goodbye. And we thought he was going home. You know, we really thought he just went in with this infection. They had to do a quick wash, you know, a minor, like not very invasive brain surgery to get rid of the infection, which they had done. He'll get some antibiotics and he'll go home. And so for him to call that night and say, I hate to tell you this kid, but I'm not going to make it through the night. And I'm calling to say goodbye. And that was one of the most absolutely painful moments of my life. I was scream crying into the phone. It was just about as like raw and vulnerable as you can get. But what I found really hard, you know, aside from that, and here's one that I think a lot of people deal with, is that. I don't think that there is a standard protocol on when to tell the patient what the prognosis is if they want to know it. And so we had found out, and I'm, unfortunately, I think this will be relatable to many people. We found out his prognosis was 12 to 18 months, and we thought it was going to be like 10 to 15 years. And we were devastated that we may only have 10 to 15 years with my dad. So to then find out after his surgery from the surgeon that night that it was 12 to 18 months literally took us to the floor. Like we being my brother, my stepmother and myself fell to the floor of this family waiting room and just sobbed and sobbed in a heap of human bodies. And for the following week, we knew and he didn't. And so he would say things to us like, I'm so grateful that the surgery went well. I'm so grateful that they got, and he'd say things like, Laura, I can't believe they got all the cancer. Like, this is the best thing. You know, I'm so lucky. I don't know if I should even be here, but they got all the cancer out. I'm now cancer free. And we knew this to not be true about GBM, but he didn't. And he'd say things like, I'm going to go back now that I have the second chance. I'm going to go back and do my master's. He wanted to go to his Canadian Women's Indigenous Studies. (laughs) And he had this idea in his head. And how do you say to him, you're not going back for a several year program? there's a chance you're not going to be here. I mean, truthfully, there's a chance none of us will be here. But those were the hardest moments was having to sort of know what he didn't know and watch his face light up with hope and not burst that for him, but be realistic. Okay. Now that, uh, that definitely makes sense. And I think that's, you know, challenging as a caregiver to kind of, in many aspects, it's just so challenging to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. Those were hard. Yeah. Also, well, actually, the first time my mom's hair came out in my hand, <laughs> that was another tough moment. My dad, you know, he didn't care. His hair was short. He was mostly losing it anyway already. But for my mom, who her hair was like her crown jewel, like she just her, always perfectly blow dried and beautiful. I think you told me this. We talked a few weeks back yeah. and then we just zoomed yeah. and just chatted for a day. But I remember you mentioned this as well. Yeah, it was tough. I just remember brushing her hair and, and it coming out and thinking, do I tell her? You know, like, her scar was where she couldn't really see it and she'd lost a lot of peripheral vision and 
thought, do I tell her or do I just let her go on? Like with this big bald spot, you know, like, what do you do? So, I mean, I did cho- choose to tell her for the record. I chose to tell her right in that moment and kind of keep it light and, and say, well, mom, here we go. Like we're at this point that's happening and show her this hair in my hand. And, but it was hard. You know, I left that room that night. She was still at my house living here at the time. I sobbed, not in front of her, but I left and sobbed. And she was actually fine. I think that was such a loaded question. Cause like, as you're talking, I'm thinking about moments during my experience and I'm like, oh wait, this moment was awful. This moment sucked. And like, this was 10 times worse than the one I just thought of. I could name literally hundreds, but the worst for sure. possible for me with my dad. So, I mean, obviously like dad's little girl, like you go to your dad for yeah. everything, right? And my dad yeah. was a chiropractor, like functional neurologist, like with any medical question, I went to him. And so yeah. I got like some weird mosquito bite rash on my back and he was lying in bed in our house, but I think he had just been put on hospice or maybe he hadn't, I can't remember. But he was lying in bed and, you know, what was very in and out, was sleeping most yeah. of the day and just wasn't really functioning. I was like, dad, I have a question. He's like, huh. And I was like, what's on my back? What is this rash? Like, what do I do? And he just like, wouldn't answer me. His eyes like, couldn't even focus. And like, at that moment, I was, holy shit, my dad is not here. I broke down sobbing. I feel like that was like the moment where I, I lost my dad even though like I said you know he was around for a few more weeks and I still said bye to him it's right that was the first time in my life he hadn't been able to help me well what do I do yeah and it was nothing it was like a little stupid rash but I was like what is this dad and he was just he wouldn't answer and I was I was so upset it was that moment where you need him to be your parent and it's the first time that he can't show up like that right and you're like I'm the parent now yeah and I mean the day that my dad died, I was with my dad when he passed away. And that was really important to me as a side note to be the person with my parents when they passed away. I think part of me just wanted to like see it through and to feel like I'd been there from day one till the very end. And I was so beside myself at the idea at the time with COVID here in Ottawa and even down where you guys are, we couldn't have more than one visitor at a time. And we could only have the one visitor in that last few days of his life when he was, and I'm air quoting this, but imminently dying. And I was so worried every time I'd go home and I'd think that my brother would take over for the night shift or the next day, or my stepmom would come in and I'd think, please don't go right now. Like, please don't go when I'm not there. I want to be there. And for the record, I was there for both of my parents. And I was, I feel very, very grateful for that. But the day my dad passed away, I was with him alone and it was three in the morning when he passed. And that later that morning, I went home to sleep, to try to sleep. And my mom's hospital called me and I hadn't been able to go see her either because of COVID. We'd been locked out of both hospitals for, it had been a couple days since we'd been locked out of both hospitals. And it was the chaplain. Chaplain? Yeah, the chaplain of the hospital. And she said, I heard, you know, I heard that your dad passed away and I'm so sorry. And I know we are not allowing any visitors here where your mom is, but I want you to have the opportunity to come and tell your mom yourself. And as it, as a daughter, you know, a grieving daughter, a caregiver, a daughter who's just lost her dad, a daughter whose mom is dying in a hospital. I had to get up from losing my dad hours before, literally, not even with a hug. Nobody would touch me. Nobody would come near me. No nurse could hug me. I was as alone as you could possibly imagine. Leaving my dad there, my stepmom had come in after he passed. I did call her and she did come in. And then I had to go to my mom's hospital and I had to shower in between because I 
I couldn't bring germs from one hospital to the other. So they made it very clear. You have to take a shower. You have to change your clothes. You have to do all these things. And then I had a chaperone at the door at the hospital where my mom was. And I had only 30 minutes that I was allowed to go in and visit my mom. And so I had 30 minutes to see her. I hadn't seen her in a week and a half and to tell her that my dad had died of the very thing she's about to die of. And it was just the worst moment. But in that moment, I needed my mom. Like I needed a parent. I needed somebody. And I went in there. I couldn't even go in with my brother, like only me, me and me alone. And I had to go tell her. And similar to your dad in that moment, she was asleep when I got there. And if you, you know, it's very hard. If you don't already know, it's very hard to wake up a a brain tumor patient. Yep. And so for her to be completely out of sleep, I actually thought she might have died when I got there that day. She was so, so heavily in a sleep and breathing shallow that I couldn't tell if she was actually alive. And I just remember thinking this can't be possible, but it would be with the way the story goes that they'd both die on the same day. They didn't, but the amount of disappointment, I don't even know if that would be a word to do it justice. Devastation, the excruciating pain and need and, you know, for my mom to just be my mommy. And I'm saying that, you know, I was 37 at the time, but literally like I was crying over her, yelling, saying, I need you to be my mommy. Please wake up. I need you. Like I just lost my dad five hours ago. I need you know, you're the mom. only person that made me cry talking about GVM huh. <laughs> on our Zoom last time too. Just like side note, Laura Dill is the only person that can make Amber Barbeck cry. I'm <laughs> talking about glioblastoma. I feel kind of honored <laughs> because it, it's such a crazy topic, right? And it's so emotional and it's so heavy. Well, and I think also the first time know. we talked about it, we actually get it. And it's so hard. Yeah. Not everyone gets it. It's quote unquote rare, but not everyone goes through it. And some people that do like, don't always want to talk about it. And I feel like when we talked for our first time, we were on the phone for two hours just talking yeah. about all these things we had never mentioned. Oh, I understand. Like, I get that. I did that too. So I'm so fortunate we've been able to chat and connect about Our everything. plan was to like quickly meet. <laughs> right. And it was like, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. They were like, oh God, the day is over and I have to go get my kids from school. And like, we all have to move on with life. But that's it. I think, and I don't even mean to trivialize a mosquito bite rash. My point is whatever it is, I just get the moment where you're like, I need my parent to be my yeah. parent. You're like a five-year-old again, like crying, mommy, daddy, I have a boo-boo. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, it's like the inner child, right? That just feels so let down and abandoned and scared. Yeah. And oh, there's a lot of therapy work around this. For, I get it. <laughs> sure for both of us. I go to therapy once a week. I have two different yep. therapists for different yeah. things. They're fantastic. I'm all advocate for it. It's perfect. I am too. I love my therapist so much. Yeah. So much. Yeah, that's the most important. I will say, though, I did want to comment for anyone listening that I know you mentioned you were with your parents when they passed away. Also, if you're not with your parents when they pass away, like that's okay too. I wasn't with my dad. Absolutely. I had actually said bye to him because I was sort of like, hang on, going to New York for a couple of days. It was Passover. It was actually, you know, right around this time, but oh, Passover yeah. was like earlier for some reason yeah. a couple of years ago. And I was just like, hang in there. Like, I'll see you in a few days. I'm going to New York for five days. I'll be back. And I, I said, you know, I wrote something really sweet to him and I said goodbye, but I was just hang in there. And the day that I left, they ended up moving him to a hospice facility. And my mom would go for like three hours every day because, you know, she still had to work. And my dad had stopped working and he was supporting our entire family. So my mom didn't work. Right. 
she needed to. Yeah. And she would go every single day for like three hours. And on the day that I was flying home, again, it was April 3rd, which was the day that he passed away. My mom was in the hospital room with him and she like noticed that he wasn't doing great, but the nurses were like, yeah, like he's fine. My dad was always very like, again, if you want something, do it by yourself. He never wanted anyone to see him in pain. And he was just the most headstrong person. So, (laughs) and I heard this thing, it's, you know, when someone's passing away, they'll kind of choose when they want to go in some kind of like subconscious spiritual realm sort of thing. And that's what I like to believe. So my mom was there on April 3rd and she left the hospital or the hospice center. And 10 minutes after she left, my dad passed away. And then they called me and I was, and she's like, and I called her and she was so upset. She's like, I just left the hospital. And like, obviously was crying and stuff, but it's just, it's crazy. So again, I wasn't with my dad. Yeah, she did. But my dad didn't want her to. Right. I still believe strongly that he would have waited until she left. Even if she like went to the bathroom, my dad did not want her there. And he definitely did not want me there. It does actually happen a lot that people will pass when their loved one goes to the bathroom. Yeah, it's actually very common that that happens. So they step out for five, 10 minutes and that person will choose that moment. And I think you're right. They go when they want to go. Well, it's super interesting because so my grandfather actually was around. My grandfather was like 98 and he was around when my dad passed away. So, of course, as a parent, seeing your child pass away was absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. And so my grandfather ended up being admitted to the hospital exactly one month after my dad passed away. And my aunt called me and she's your grandfather's in the hospital. You should go say bye. And I was, huh? I thought everything was again. Like he was. 98 multiple hip replacements like you know just had a lot of different stuff going on yeah but she was I think you should go say bye to your grandfather and I was like okay my mom has the car this morning because we were sharing a car at the time but I'll go and I'll take the car as soon as she gets home in like three hours and I had this horrible urge I felt like my dad was get your butt to the hospital Amber go you know so I ended up ubering I got to the hospital and I had brought my dad's Yukon hat, which even on an Instagram, like I've posted it like a hundred times. He wore it probably every day for his life. It was the dirtiest, smelliest, <laughs> wore it every single day. But my grandfather kept like asking for it before he went to the hospital. And I get there and he's breathing super shallow. And it's like me and my cousin ended up coming and like his aide, who was part of the family. She was the most incredible woman. Her name is Barbara. I don't know if she's listening. She's an angel. My grandfather was her best friend. She was yeah. the best. And put my dad's Yukon hat on my grandfather's head. And like within five minutes, he passed away. Yeah. It was the craziest thing. And so I felt like me being there was sort of not like a redo for my dad, but it felt like it was supposed to happen that way. So I think whether you're there or you're not, I mean. And does that bring you comfort? There's no right or answer. Yeah. Death is a weird thing. But I also think that people choose when they decide to go. And it brings me comfort that, I was able to give him the hat because it was within five minutes. The hat did something. It gave him like a sense of something that just everything happens for a reason. Like he didn't just pass away five minutes after I put the hat on his head. Something happened. I think so. I don't know. I think it's crazy. So so beautiful though. And especially the way it comes back to your dad and that you weren't there when your dad passed and my mom, I had a similar thing with my mom where, you know, I didn't talk about this, but I do talk about it a bit in the book. The reason I had taken my mother to live with me 
was because my stepfather was an alcoholic. He's a recovering alcoholic now and he's been sober since she passed away. And I feel like I do need to give him so much credit and a shout out for that because that's been very hard for him. But at the time he was not. And so we had a very rough relationship, him and I, for many years, for the five years previous, prior to her diagnosis, we hadn't spoken. And that was my decision. I had done that to protect my children at the time and and myself and my mental health. And so I think her wish in life, and my mom and I always talked like three, four, five times a week, and we saw each other once or twice a week. So despite that, my relationship with him, despite that, her and I maintained the closest mother-daughter relationship. And it was really beautiful. But going into this diagnosis, I think for her, she just felt like, well, now can my family come back together? And we did. For all intents and purposes, we did. I said to him, I hated you, but now I'm just going to have to love you because that's the only way we're going to be able to do this all together. We're mixing step parents, right? We're really, truly blended, a blended family at that point. And so that was fine, but there was issues throughout that year with him and his drinking and, and that addiction. And at the very end, on the last day of her life, he had remained sober now for several weeks anyway, and he'd actually been showing up the way he should have been the whole time, but he finally was actually doing it. And we were sitting in her hospital room and she was, I mean, we knew she was going at this point, you know, we knew it was a matter of days and, and him and I were having this conversation on either side of her bed. And it was early on a Friday morning. And this conversation was really nice. And I had a moment and he's a fantastic storyteller. And I was just listening and absorbing all these stories. And I felt like, wow, something has changed. Like I suddenly have this respect for him this love and respect for him that I didn't have before. I don't mean that in like, now he's going to be my parent or we're going to mend, you know, all this relationship we had and we're going to go forward as a family. But I just knew like there's a peace now and I didn't have that peace with him before. And just as I thought that, my mom took this weird, loud inhale, like a sharp, weird breath. And I looked at him and I was like, this, I think this is it. He said, I think this is it too. And we huddled around her and she, her breathing had drastically changed. And I said, Mark, he loved, he loves music. He's a big music guy. My stepdad's name is Mark. I said, Mark, put on a song. He would, I would come and read to her every day and he'd come and play her music every day and sing to her. And so I said, put on a song, put on a song. And so he did, he put a song on, on his laptop. She had set up right beside her and we held her hands through the song and cried and cried and cried. We each held one of her hands and we knew like any second this can happen. And I messaged my brother and I said, hurry up, get here. This is it. Like mom is going to pass away in a few minutes. And Richard, my brother, Richard said, no, I don't really want to be there for that. And all along, he's like, this is goes back to you saying it's okay if you're not there. Cause you're absolutely right. I wanted to be there. Richard did not want to be there. And Richard is very much at peace with the fact that he was not there for my dad. In fact, he's grateful he wasn't there when my dad passed away. But I'm grateful that I got to be there. And so he said, I, you know, I don't want to come. I, I'll go get coffees for everybody. I said, no, no, just get here. Like, I, you know, you have to be here. You have to be here. My poor brother. <laughs> and so anyway, he was literally coming up the elevator when she passed. But this song was playing and then it was coming to an end. And I leaned over and I kissed her forehead. And this nurse that was in the room, a bit of an angel like Barbara, her name was Lorraine. And she said, oh my gosh, Laura, kiss her head again. And so I kissed her forehead again, just as the last note of the song played. And then she took her last breath. And that was, and then That's two minutes later, beautiful. Richard walked. Yeah. And then Richard walked into the room two minutes later with a tray of coffee. <laughs> so if he hadn't gone to get the coffee, he would have been there. He didn't want to be there. And I think it just all was very divinely timed. I think 
my mom knew he's not here. This is the time. My daughter and my husband are finally connected. You know, there's the piece I've been waiting for. Like everything just sort of perfectly like wrapped up with a bow. And as much as it was tragic, it was one of the most beautiful and profound moments of my entire life. No, definitely. I I totally agree. Hearing you say that that brought you peace, is there anything related to death that has been able to bring you peace, whether it's like a quote or a way you view something in life that has helped you cope and sort of come to terms with your parents passing away? I have a really great example and I can give you one first. I'm not sure. Give me your example. Total sense. Yeah. Yeah. So someone had told me, I wish I could remember who, that they said everyone, it's kind of hard because I'll just explain it first. It's that everyone passes away when their soul feels like it's accomplished what they needed to do on this earth. Yes. And anyone could argue that, you know, but they're, they were so young and, but there's so much time left. And, you know, even for a kid that has cancer, I think it's so difficult to rationalize that statement. But I think just me personally, it helps me a lot because I guess it's me putting faith in like the universe that, you know, at least for my dad, he did what he came here to do. And like, it's so unfortunate he's not here. And there's so many things I wish he could be here to experience. Oat milk wasn't a thing (laughs) when my dad was, no, and it's the craziest thing. It's the dumbest stuff. Oat milk, almond milk, proper, good tasting, (laughs) gluten-free snack. They weren't around four years ago, you know? And so it's, I like to think that he did what he came here to do. And I would love to have my dad and here and tell him all the amazing stuff that I'm doing. I think I sometimes find peace in like knowing that he did his job. At least I hope so. (laughs) It's really, really, really beautiful and so spiritual. And I could not agree more. And I'm really blessed. A lot of people, this will turn them off, but I have a very close friend who's a psychic medium. And for me, it's been just a really incredible experience to have her in my life in general. But that some of the stuff that she has said to me, which I have chosen to take comfort from, right? And it's very right. similar to what you just said. Many people, you know, have a very different opinion and will happily share their opinion with me, which quite honestly don't really want, don't really want to hear because I like the, what I believe and it brings me comfort and I don't need that to change. Everyone has the right to believe what they want. Exactly. And there's yeah. no one who should tell you that you're wrong. And if you don't believe no. the same thing, it's like, great, do whatever yeah. makes you happy and think whatever will bring you comfort. That's right. And she has spoken to what you just touched on, which is that every soul kind of has its own journey and its own purpose. And that before your soul enters earth in your earthly body, this is getting a little bit like woo-woo, but <laughs> you know, like your soul knows, like it chooses the journey. It knew that that would be where its journey ended at that time, at that age. And time is fairly arbitrary. So that brings me comfort. And I've seen a lot of death in my life before my parents and this particular friend has been very helpful for me in that area with these past death experiences that I've seen from people I love. And yeah, I just think that is what brings me a lot of comfort is the feeling that their soul didn't leave early. It left when it was supposed to. Is it too early for me? Oh my God, yes. I'm the one who's mad, right? My brother, my step-parents, they're my parents' siblings, but they are okay. They are beyond okay. They are where there isn't pain and there isn't suffering and there isn't COVID and there isn't a war and there isn't all of these crazy things that are happening in the world. And then the other thing that I think really brings me a lot of comfort around this is doing something with it. I think if I was sitting around 
not moving my body, getting depressed. Now, clinical depression is a whole other thing. PTSD is a whole thing. I deal with it, I know, but there you can use all of those experiences as sort of fuel to do something to move forward the way you have done, or you can let it consume you and decide who you're going to be for the rest of your life. And if that's sad and bitter and upset and angry, then you're not going to get very far and you're not going to make any change. And I just feel like the power that we've been given, and it's almost like an obligation. I think you feel the same way. Like you almost feel obligated to do something good with the grief that you have and the things you've experienced. And then the trust, just the trust that someday I'll be with them again. Like, I don't feel like this is it. I feel like I'm going to see them again. I talk to them every day. It's going to feel real long for me. Right. That's what's hard on earth. It's going to feel really long for us. It doesn't for them, but it's going to feel really excruciatingly long. I think something that sort of brings me comfort and I'm so thankful. I mean, like my mom is here, but unfortunately my dad is not. And it's, you know, unfortunately something happens to me, like I'm going back to my dad. Right. So it kind of, not that it makes me happy. Granted, I'm very happy here on this earth, but if unfortunately, like God forbid something happens, it's okay because I'm going back to my dad. I just want to say though that nobody can see you right now, but we, like you and I are on video, (laughs) right? So uh, you guys can't see this, but when Amber said that, her face lit up. Aw. With this warm- Sad, you're going to make me cry again, (laughs) Laura. (laughs) But truly, like this little- little girl on Christmas morning. Like I get to see my dad. And I just think that that's like really beautiful. I mean, speaking, no, no, no. And then, and also speaking of, you know, not sitting with grief and, you know, making something out of it, Mm -hmm. you created your own nonprofit, which has now been accepted in Canada. Do you want to tell our listeners about that and what you're doing, what the plans are and share information so that they can follow you and get involved? So first of all, in Canada is very hard to get registered as a charity. You can be a not-for-profit, but to be, you know, what you guys would equivalent to a 501c is very, very difficult up here. So we did that. It took us a year and we are finally a registered, recognized registered charity in Canada. So it's funny to add in the sound effects where like the whole audience is clapping. (laughs) (laughs) Please do. Like organ noises and stuff. Yeah. So yeah, it took quite a while. And I mean, it's such a feat to do that, that I sobbed my face off on the day I found out we'd been finally approved. So what a huge thing that was for me personally, you know, as a, my gosh, what's the word? Like as a victory, right? Like as a moral victory, I feel like something I overcame. But yeah, so it's called the Slay Society. I started this in 2020 when my parents were in the hospital right before COVID started and they were both in different What inspired the name? Ah, I'm so glad you asked that. So my dad had a motto. She knows the answer too, but my dad had a motto that was slay one dragon at a time. And when he was diagnosed, that was the first thing he said to us in the hospital room when the neurosurgeon left after having said this is a glioblastoma. Now we didn't even know the prognosis at that time, but my dad- Wait, sorry to cut you off. You want to know something really funny? The first thing my dad said to me was, shit, I shouldn't have cheated on my math test (laughs) when I was younger. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, continue. I just thought that was funny. Your dad's like motivational and strong and mine's like, like, this is what I get for cheating. Karma sucks. Oh my gosh. But I love that they can all keep their sense of humor, right? Like my dad has such a great, yeah. My dad has such a great sense of humor too. But yeah, no, he said, okay guys, because we were all crying and he was not. And he said, 
we're just going to slay one dragon at a time. And so that carried through to my mom's diagnosis and the whole journey. And that was kind of became our motto. And my daughter had used her birthday money that year, my eight-year-old at the time, to buy them Beanie Boo dragons, each a Beanie Boo dragon, to remind them of their dragons they were slaying. And so each thing was a dragon, right? Like my dad said, if they tell me I have to do surgery tomorrow, that's our first dragon. We slay that one. And if they tell me I have to do radiation, we slay that one. Like every that's single That's a great step. mindset. I like that a lot. It was. It was really a good way for him to self-preserve and not look at the big picture too much and to help us to not do the same. And so when I named this charity that, the idea was that what we do is we actually raise money to support caregivers. So we're not raising money for research. We're leaving that to Amber. <laughs> we're not raising money for clinical trials. We're leaving that to Colin, <laughs> Colin Gurner. But yeah, so we raise money for the caregivers and we put that right into caregivers' hands so they can buy gas, parking passes, groceries, like things that will help just alleviate some of the extra burden. Because it's so hard. Financial Even strength. like when my mom, when we were my dad's diagnosis, my aunt had sent my mom, sort of my mom's sister, gave like a bunch of like Whole Foods gift cards. And yeah. the world of difference that that made just in my mom's life, it's yeah. night and day. And so I think it's fantastic that you guys are so caregiver focused because it's caregivers are just as important as the patient. Like it's everyone's a team and everyone's like one unit. And it's so important to focus on all aspects. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. And really what started it was that I was really loud, like you and I have talked about this. I was really loud about our journey and on social media, talking about it and posting and sharing pictures that, you know, people found controversial, but I was so open and honest about it. And that gained a following of people saying, holy cow, you're like, thank you for talking about this. And and because of the nature of our story, the weird nature of it, it, that also brought a big following. And because I could talk about it so openly, a lot of people were supporting me a lot, a lot, a lot. Daily, I would show up and there'd be gift bags hanging on my front door from strangers. And we had big oh, companies wow. like Bauer Hockey sent us $2,500 worth of gift cards for like Walmart and Shoppers Drug Mart and all these. That's incredible. Really, yeah, like gas gift cards. And so to be the recipient of those things was really, it went a long way for me. But my stepmom one day had said to me, well, that's nice. No one's sending me any of any gift cards. Like no one's helping me. And I kind of thought, you know, well, that's because you're not talking about it. Like people don't know because you're not going on social media, verbally spewing your personal life all over the place the way <laughs> that I am so comfortably doing. And not very many people want to do that. So who's helping those people, right? Who's helping the people that aren't jumping up and down saying, hey, I'm over here and I need help. I'm struggling. And it, it's still not an easy place for us in this day and age to say, hey, I need help. I'm struggling. But it's really important. What would you say to someone who wants support but is uncomfortable being as open or sharing their story. You know, I really don't think anyone needs to go throw their life all over social media or public platforms, but I absolutely learn to accept help from whoever you can get it from. And go to places, any of our charities, like Amber's, mine, uh, any of these charities are here to at least point you in the right direction, right? At least we know if we're not the charity that's going to support the caregiver, go over here. Or if we're not the one that's going to raise money for that particular thing, here's the one that does. And I think we all work really synergistically as like a beautiful team around raising awareness and support for glioblastoma in all facets. But I think it is so crucially important to just accept help and learn to accept help and know that people want to help you. People desperately want to do the right thing. 
And more often than not, they have no friggin' idea how. So they're going to say things like, well, tell me what you need. And you're not going to be able to answer that because you don't have a clue. But if someone does show up and say, can I just like mow your lawn or do your laundry or I'm going to go to the grocery store, what do you need? Please pick up your damn phone and say, milk, bread, make it oat milk, oat milk, bread, gluten-free crackers. (laughs) Just take the help because you know And the reason you're being offered this is because they know you would do the same thing for them. And should that opportunity avail itself to you, you would. So accept the help. The smallest group of supporters. Right. Make the world of a difference. Absolutely. Yeah. And so we have to wrap up shortly, but I do have a few questions from our Instagram followers. We Mm -hmm. ended up doing a QA and a where we have some questions that were submitted for caregivers. So I thought this would be the perfect opportunity to ask you a few questions. Totally. So the first question is from a patient asking, how can I lessen the worry for my caregiver? I hate to rely solely on them. (laughs) I don't know if you can. You know, I think it's just in their human makeup to worry about you and to, oh gosh, that's a tough question. The one thing I wish my mom would have done, okay, two things. I wish she would have tried harder. It's a weird thing to say because I haven't been in her shoes, but As a caregiver, and I'm only going to speak to my experience, as a daughter, I wanted her to do well. Not that I wanted her to, you know, of course I wanted her to live 30 years when they told her it would be one, but I wanted her to, in that one, have just the best quality of life and be the most comfortable and feel really great. Like I would have loved if she could have just felt amazing until the last day. And so I would encourage her and try to help her and support her through doing her physio, just, you know, having maybe less wine. I don't know, whatever it was, (laughs) just know that your caregiver, everything they're doing is out of love. And I wish that she'd been like, yeah, okay, we'll go on that walk instead of being like, well, what's the point? And she'd kind of get like, well, what's the point? I'm too tired. Now I haven't sat in her shoes. So I'm also very aware that she was really tired and maybe she was depressed and who could blame her. And you know, there's so many other factors at play, but I just, I don't know. I feel like just know, and if you can try to be patient with your caregiver because they really are coming at this from 1000% love and good intention. And they're trying to make your life as great as it can be. I know that there's compassion fatigue on both sides, but that's where they're coming from 100% of the time. They may not do it the right way, but if you have it in your heart to be patient with them, I think that would help some of the the strain and the stress on them too. Nice. So this is another question. Are there any phrases or words you would avoid when talking to a patient? I have insight to this based on a patient actually, who you actually might know, Amber, but if you're talking about what I wouldn't say to a patient versus what I would suggest you don't say to a caregiver, what I wouldn't say to a patient is the word should. Like you should, I just went and said kind of the opposite, but you should not eat that. You should get up and walk. We should be doing this. I had a patient that I interviewed once and I said, what was helpful for you as a patient to hear? This is a long, a long-term survivor. What was the most helpful thing for you to hear and to not hear from your caregivers? And he said, the hardest thing was all the shoulds and to be treated like they knew better. They knew what was good for me more than I knew what was good for me. I found that very insightful. I wish I'd asked them that before my parents had passed away. But, you know, just that of like, instead of approaching it with, Amber, you should stop eating so much sugar. 
or you should probably get more protein or you should get up and go for a walk, approaching it with a more like, what can I do for you? What do you think you need today? What can I help you with? You know, what is something that would be full of protein that you'd love to have? And that was helpful for me. That's really, really good feedback. Yeah. And I think the last one we'll go with is if you could advise others that take care of a GBM patient at home by themselves, what advice would you give them? Yeah, get help, get all the damn help, take all of it. Like, <laughs> and I think this is like your permission slip in life. This is your hall pass to honestly reach out to anybody ever, anywhere. If you're as ballsy as I am, throw it on social media and say, can someone cut my lawn every week? Can somebody pick up groceries for me that on this day? I had friends coming and washing my dirty clothes, like taking them to her house down the street. And actually she offered, I didn't ask that, but I took her up on it and that took me a long time. But especially if you're alone and you're doing that caregiving, whether you're caregiving literally as a single person or as a mom or a dad or a whatever, or you've got dependents or not, take all of the help you can get and know that it's there for a reason. You know, whether you're spiritual or not and call it God and call it the universe and call it anything, those people have been put around you and put in that place to help you for a reason. So like, let them help you and know that you would give it back to them in a heartbeat when their time of need comes, but accept the help, reach out and take it and accept it if it's offered. And don't be afraid to literally ask for it. That's really hard for us, right? We really have a hard time in our society. So reach out and say, be very specific. People don't know what to do. That's why they say, tell me what you need. And you're like, I don't know. But if it comes up, and even if you're like, you know what I need today? I need a, I need a Starbucks message someone. Can anyone bring me a Starbucks? They will do this. People will do this. People are jumping at the chance to be humans, good humans, and to do good things for people. I remember when my dad was sick, there was a point where he stopped eating solid food and would only drink smoothies. And he had this woman that was next to his office. So she saw him every day and she was like, I'll come bring you guys smoothies every morning. And she would bring a smoothie for me, for my mom, and like four for my dad as like his nutrition for the day. And it was the nicest thing. And I was, this just made my life a hundred times easier. And not that my life was, you know, any point easy, but I was like, you know, having like prepared smoothies was fantastic. So I definitely think that's great advice. Yeah. And you know who it fulfilled more than you, your mom and your dad? Her. Right. Right. Like it fulfilled her even more than it fulfilled you guys. So really ask for help and take the help. Well, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. I feel like I love every single conversation we have and I hope every <laughs> listener here will will love it just as much. Thank you. If we want to go follow you on social media and Slay Society, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, goodness. Okay, so I mean me personally I share a lot of my you know my caregiver journey, but a lot of now my grief journey or grief revolution as I've seen it be called and it I'm just at Laura Dill 12 on Instagram or Laura Dill on Hotmail. The Slay Society you can follow on Facebook just on the which is called Slay Society. No, that's a live Slay Society Inc. Same thing on Instagram. And then our website is slaysocietyinc.ca. Awesome. Well, Laura, thank you so much. It's literally always a pleasure. I'm, I'm so happy that, unfortunately, that we met through glioblastoma circumstances, yeah. but I'm so thrilled that we got connected. You're fantastic. And I you, Amber. love you're phenomenal. And I'm, I'm so excited to keep working together to thank you so much. And thank you for this podcast and all the others that you are bringing to so many people. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. (laughs) Thanks. Bye.
That's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for tuning in again to another episode of Glioblastoma, aka GBM. To get in touch with our organization, visit us online at gbmresearch.org or visit us on Instagram or Facebook at Glioblastoma Research. Visit us on Twitter at glioblastoma.org or visit us on LinkedIn at Glioblastoma Research Organization. To make a donation to the organization, which is fully tax deductible, visit us online at gbmresearch.org where you can designate your donation in honor of someone or find other methods that you can make a donation with. Thank you again for supporting us, for supporting the show, and we'll see you next week.